Well, it is a privilege to be here, and I've been blessed by the first two lectures in our I tract, and I um, am looking forward to sharing with you what I have learned over the last several months in preparing for this lecture. And as I have, and my name is Brad MD, by the way, I'm from Greenville, Tennessee, and I was thinking about this text, and you know the text that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This kept going through my mind uh, the whole time I was preparing for this, and, and you'll know why here as we get into this, but there's a there's a version of the Bible, as I looked at the different versions, that I liked a little bit better for this particular text. And it says, you have made, this is the New Living Translation, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. And David says, how well I know it. And so David did not know what I'm going to show you today. And, um, but he will as we get, when he gets to heaven, right? So with that, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for making us so wonderfully complex. And your workmanship is marvelous. And now, Lord, as we ask that your Holy Spirit come into this place and in our hearts and minds... We ask that you speak to us as we discover new and exciting things about your creation and our wonderfully complex bodies so that we'll know how to take care of them and share this information with others. So we ask for your wisdom now, and we ask that uh, you give us clarity of thought and give me clarity of thought. In your name I pray, amen. So I have no disclosures except for our listening audience. I'll be reading several quotes on the screen written by various authors of each study. And for the sake of time, I will just have the references listed on each slide. So the lymphatic system, glaucoma, and outer space. How in the world are these related to eye care? Well, let's look at our learning objectives. Number one, we want to provide, I want to provide a general overview of the lymphatic system in the brain. Number two, I want to examine the problem of blindness in astronauts occurring with prolonged stay in outer space. And number three, to explore some of the latest theories of both topics above as it relates to glaucoma and other neurodegenerative diseases such as ALS and Alzheimer's disease. I love well-designed things. I love well-designed cars, tools, medical equipment, and I love well-designed scientific studies and other things. And I love designing things well, even if it's just a shelf in the closet for my wife. I love doing it in a way where she says, oh, that's perfect. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, whether it's an overseas vision clinic that we might set up that Dennis would teach me how to do and where it, it flows just right. You know, I love well-designed things and I love designing things well. And I love it when I de- I've designed something and somebody studies it and appreciates the design in it. And I think God does too. And so today we're going to study some things about our created, our, our mind, our brain. And uh, I think we're going to be, before I go on, I think we're going to be spending eternity 
learning about the design that God has put into our bodies, into his creation, and David himself will be marveled yet again. So let's proceed and see if I designed this lecture to where you can understand it. Interesting fact about the brain. The blood vessels in our brain are organized in a very different way than they are in the peripheral organs. In the peripheral organs, often the arteries, the veins, and the lymph run parallel next to each other into the organs surrounded by fibrous tissue. But in the brain, the arteries and the veins are always separated. They don't run in parallel together. They never do that. The large vessels dive directly down into the tissue, and they're separate. The veins and arteries are separate. The brain is well designed. It floats in CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, and that's 99% water approximately. And our brains weigh about three pounds, but in water, they weigh 50 grams. The brains weigh 50 grams, or a tenth of a pound. And that prevents the brain from collapsing in on itself, which is a well-designed feature. And also, the CSF protects the brain from mild traumatic injury. The total volume of CSF is about an eighth of a liter at any one time, and we produce about a half a liter per day. And so it completely turns over three to four times a day. It's mostly produced in the choroid plexus of the lateral lateral ventricles at approximately 20 to 25 milliliters per hour. But I want you to remember this part. CSF production decreases by 50% normally as we age. CSF production decreases 50% as we age. So let's review the lymphatic system. In the lymphatic system, most of the body's organs remove dead cells and other waste using the lymphatic system. And these vessels run alongside the blood vessels and transport out lymph, the colorless fluid containing infection-fighting immune cells and waste, Lymph is filtered through the lymph nodes and then returned back into the bloodstream. So right here you can see a picture of a lymph vessel and the the extracellular matrix right here. These proteins are are basically washed in and the the lymph drains that and then it gets uh, put back into the bloodstream here. And um, there's three liters of lymph that is returned into the general circulation every day and 24 grams of protein every day are, are washed out of our extracellular matrix in our bodies. The interesting thing is, is how the brain clears waste and fights infections has been a mystery. And although the human brain has blood vessels, there's no evidence it has a lymphatic system. So here's the lymphatic system, and notice the brain is void of any lymphatic system. And what was known was that the cerebral spinal fluid cleanses the brain tissue. But how the fluid moves through the brain and clears the waste wasn't well understood until now. Scientists could only study brain tissue in animals that were already dead. They thought nutrients and waste were transported through the slow process of diffusion. So let's remind ourselves of fluid mechanics here a little bit. Diffusion is the transfer of particles along a concentration gradient. Convection refers to the the motion of fluid 
and then we have thermal and thermal convection, which is driven by temperature gradients, and we have, but in the brain, convection refers to the fluid flow driven like a river caused by a pressure gradient, such as an arterial pulse or gravity. So the problem with diffusion is that it's slow. So this says diffusion right here, and this is convection. And this is a particle, and that's how far it traveled, and you can see how little it traveled. Over the same amount of time, with convection, that particle can travel much, much further. The other nice thing about convection is, other than it's fast, if you're a small particle, like uh, beta amyloid, or if you're a larger waste particle, particle like uh, tau, then, which is 10 times larger, both proteins essentially move at the same speed as the fluid is moving. So convection can move larger molecules just as fast as the smaller molecules. This is an MRI of the brain, and through MRIs, we know that CSF is in motion all of the time. And this is just simply an uh, image taken off of Wikipedia. But it's fascinating to me because that's your, you can see the arterial pulse and the CSF and how it's moving all the time. So let's consider sleep a little bit here. And we have, a, there's a few facts about sleep. And number one, sleep is helpful. We all know that. And we all know that we have to have sleep. If we don't have sleep, we eventually would die. It refreshes us as we sleep, and studies have shown that the dendritic complexity within the brain decreases with sleep deprivation. Basically, the connections in the brain are lost when we lose sleep. It helps our bodies fight infections as we sleep, and it calms inflammation. The anti-inflammatory process actually is much more efficient while we're asleep than while we're awake. And we all know that if you ever take a red-eye flight, the reason that your eyes are red is because of the inflammation. You, you were supposed to sleep eight hours to London, but instead you slept two. And so everybody's eyes are red and inflamed, and uh, that's because sleep is anti-inflammatory. Sleep also improves cognition and memory, and we're more alert and less drowsy, and it helps us retain the things that we learn. And we could go on and on about other things about the benefits of sleep. But fact number two about sleep is that we do not sleep to preserve energy. Only a little bit of energy is saved during sleep. The brain consumes nearly the same amount of energy while we're asleep than while we're awake. Why? It's because the brain is still active, quite active, while we're asleep. So what's the brain doing during sleep that takes all this energy? Well, they found out in August of 2012, and in a new study, and I'm going to quote this from the NIH website, in a new study, a research team led by Drs. Jeffrey Eiliff and Macon Nettergaard at the University of Rochester Medical Center used a method called two-photon laser scanning microscopy to analyze the flow of cerebral spinal fluid in living mouse brains. This new technology allowed scientists to study the intact brain in real time. They injected tracer molecules into the subarachnoid space, a cerebral spinal fluid cavity between the membranes that cover the brain and the spinal cord. 
Why did they pick mice? The reason is because the skull of a mouse is very transparent. And they could literally peel back the skin of the, of the mouse, the skull, and the photons would actually penetrate the skull, and they could look inside the mouse brains live while the mouse was alive, and they could see the distribu- distribution of these tracer molecules. And you're looking at a molecule, A594, that they did. They injected this into the subarachnoid space, and within 30 minutes, the entire brain had this tracer molecule in it. Within 30 minutes, okay? And this was not accomplished by extra lymphatic vessels in the brain, remember. There are no lymphatic vessels in there. So this is all through the CSF. And what they found was that astrocytes, which is, this is a picture of an astrocyte here with the end feet, their little end feet right here form a barrier around the blood vessels in the brain that covers 98.4% of all the vasculature in the brain. And when they, when they cover the, the blood vessel, it makes a space, a gap, around the blood vessels. And so here is the blood vessel diving down into the brain, and so you're looking right here at one of these blood vessels. So here comes, there's the artery, the artery dives down deep in the brain, here is, here is an astrocyte. Here's the end feet. It's, it's picturing it's surrounding this blood vessel. This is also known as the, is it Verkau Ar- Arvo or, or Verkau? Verkau Robin space. So the uh, paravascular space basically around the blood vessel there. And there's, aqua, there's these aquaporin-4 channels that are these little dots right here. These are water channels that literally the CSF can flow into the, ext- in the extracellular space. And this channel, so, so the white gap right here would be the space that the CSF can access quickly, piggybacking the blood vessel into the brain. And so talk about well-designed and efficient You've already got the blood vessels. You've already got them in the brain. You're taking the blood there. Let's just bring the cleaning fluid on the outside of it and uh, take that right into the brain within 30 minutes. And so this picture depicts an artery and a vein. And now you know why God designed us with separated blood vessels in the brain. Because the CSF comes on the outside of the artery, and because this pressure is higher, there's a convective bulk flow through the extracellular space that washes away the solutes and the metabolic waste that builds up during the day, and it comes over to this space, which is surrounding the veins, and it leaves. Clever. Very clever. So this glial cell, the astrocytes are glial cells, and this is very similar to the lymphatic system, what it does. And so they call it the glymphatic system. And that was the term that Dr. Nettergaard coined for this process because these are not typical lymph vessels. 
but they do the same thing that lymph vessels would do. That's why it's called the glymphatic system. This, this was not taught before 2012. Nobody knew this really existed. And I shouldn't say that because there was some evidence of it, but uh, some of the researchers were that originally kind of saw this, uh, they didn't have the technology that uh, Dr. Nettegaard has in her lab, but, but uh, they were kind of made fun of. And uh, the researchers that originally found this, I think it was in the 90s, 80s or 90s, actually stopped doing research because they were made fun of so much. And so um, she went on to, uh, I think, direct a nursing program or something. I can't remember where she went. But anyhow, that's an aside. So pretty amazing stuff and pretty amazing design element. And because of the pressure gradient, it's unidirectional, and this is another picture of this. So you can kind of see the, the artist here has the artery, and there's the space, the perivascular space, with the aquaporin-4 aquapor channels, these water channels, and then washing out, draining over onto the venous side, the waste. Interestingly, the perivascular space in mice is a lot larger than was previously thought. So they thought originally that this space was very tiny, very little, maybe a few microns thick. But in reality, what you're seeing here is with this dextron uh, tracer molecule here, you can see that how wide this space actually is, almost as wide as the blood vessel itself. When they inserted these microspheres, and each one was, had a different tracer molecule, you can see how thick the actual channel that the, the, tr the tracer molecule, molecules went through. Another interesting feature is that it's not like a donut like this, like the, this artist. It's actually triangular shaped. So where it's flowing, these two channels right here, on cross-section right there of that artery, it's actually a triangular-shaped space. It's not a donut like they originally thought. So they wondered, how in the world would you transport a half of a liter out of the CSF, I mean, out of the brain of CSF every day? And Antoine Laveau at the University of Virginia in 2015, so this is just four years ago, they actually did find actual lymphatic vessels in the brain. And uh, basically, he says, we discovered functional lymphatic vessels lining the dural sinuses. These structures express all the molecular hallmarks of lymphatic endothelial cells and are able to carry both fluid and immune cells from the CSF and are connected to the deep cervical lymph nodes. The unique location of these vessels may have impeded their discovery to date, thereby contributing to the long-held concept of the absence of lymphatic vasculature in the CNS. And the discovery of CNS lymphatic system may call for a reassessment of basic assumptions in neuroimmunology and shed new light on the etiology of neuroinflammatory and neurodegenerative diseases associated with immune system dysfunction. Now it made sense how the brain could process so much fluid to take to the liver to be processed. And they wondered, well, how can the brain act almost like a kidney and pump all of this fluid around while it's awake, because if you're awake and you have neural activity, 
cognition, cognitive activity requires a lot of energy. And pumping fluid also requires a tremendous amount of energy. And how could this happen? How could both be going on at the same time? And then they realized that all these mice that they were checking, they were all anesthetized. And so they were basically asleep. During all their research to date, these mice were asleep. And so they said, well, does this happen in real uh, awake mice? So this is a little video that they're showing. And this, on the left is an awake mouse brain. And on the right is a, a mouse brain that's asleep. And this is over a 30-minute period. And you can see it's only during sleep that this CSF starts going in like that. So Dr. Nettergaard, she um, is the one that's kind of speaking right here, and that's, that's, that was a picture of her. So this extra, they found that the extracellular volume within the brain cortex increased by 60% when the mice were asleep or, or anesthetized. So in the skull, you only have so much room, and if the extracellular matrix increases by 60%, that means that the brain cells would have to shrink while you're asleep to allow for this extra, and that's in fact what they're suggesting. And they found that beta amyloid, which is important in many diseases, including um, Alzheimer's, disappeared twice as quickly while mice were asleep than while they were awake. So the understanding of how and when the brain activates the glymphatic system and clears waste is a critical first step in efforts to potentially modulate the system and make it work more efficiently, according to Dr. Nettergaard. The how is driven, at least in part, by the arterial pulsivity that we mentioned about earlier and explains why the CSF enters the brain around the pulsating arteries and not the veins. The when is during sleep, and the same modulators that wake us up turn off the glymphatic system, mainly norepinephrine and orexin. And when they're decreased, the glymphatic system is turned on. So then they wondered, does body position matter during sleep? And we know that body position matters for the lymphatic system for the rest of our body. And most animals sleep with their head down, as do humans. And you know this if you've ever taken the red eye and you're trying to sleep in your seat upright and how much you would pay for first-class tickets just to lay down. And people pay thousands just to lay down. So it's very hard to sleep sitting up. And so yes, the answer is yes, body position does affect the glymphatic system. And if you happen to be a rat, sleeping on your right side allows 30% more inflow of the CSF into the brain to wash away the metabolic waste. If you happen to be a human, yes, body position affects the glymphatic system too. They found this in humans and other species as well. And why they think this is is because the heart on the left side as we sleep on the right side it's able to, um, 
beat more efficiently and the norepinephrine stress levels and everything would be lower and so that would turn on more glymphatic activity. If you're pregnant, a New Zealand study just in April of this year provides the strongest evidence to date that women can more than half their risk of stillbirth by going to sleep on either side during the last three months of pregnancy. Now, this is nothing new, but this is interesting because they estimate that just this knowledge could save 153,000 babies a year. So, in humans, so forget mice for a second. Let's go to humans, the glymphatic system in humans. Inspiration is the major regulator of human CSF flow. So remember how I I showed you the picture of the MRIs, and we know that arterial pulsitivity is is contributing some to that. But this study shows that inspiration, and the researchers say we observed significant CSF flow exclusively with inspiration, in particular during the forced breathing High CSF flow was elicited during every inspiration, whereas breath holding suppressed it. Only a minor flow component could be ascribed to the cardiac pulsation. The present results unambiguously identify inspiration as the most important driving force for CSF flow in humans. If you happen to have sleep apnea, and you have patients that are worried or scared about using their mask, um, you might want to tell them why they should wear it, if nothing else, just for the glymphatic system. And then you'll have to give them this whole lecture. <laughs> or if you don't have, at least maybe a breathe right strip or, or maybe sleeping on your right side. So Dr. Nedegaard says these findings have significant implications for ter- treating dirty brain diseases like Alzheimer's. And the reason is because protein accumulation is a general feature of all neurodegenerative diseases. So in Alzheimer's, you have the uh, beta amyloid plaques. In Parkinson's, you have the Lewy bodies right here. In Huntington's, you have the intranuclear inclusions. In prion disease, you have the uh, amyloid plaques, and then ALS, you have the aggregates as well. So in mice, the glymphatic system gets less active as they got older. So in mice, if you're a mouse, your glymphatic system gets less active by 80 to 90% as you get older. Why? Because in mice, they also have a decrease in CSF production by 66%. And number two, they have a decrease in CSF pressure by 27%. But what about humans? Well, what did you remember what we said? Humans, the CSF production decreases by 50%. Okay? And so as we age, less waste is cleared like beta amyloid, which could potentially lead to increased risk of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's. So then the question is, are there other factors in addition to age that can affect the glymphatic system? What about other diseases, maybe diabetes or hypertension? Well, sure enough, 
in July of 2016, this, this study shows clearance of cerebral spinal fluid contrast agent from the interstitial space was slowed by a factor of three if you're a type 2 diabetic rat. And then August of this year, which is basically two months ago, glymphatic transport is compromised both in early and advanced stages of hypertension. So we know that hypertension leads to what? Hardening of the arteries, right? And so you're going to have less uh, arterial pulsation with that. And we all know, too, that patients with hypertension are much more at higher risk for developing dementia and Alzheimer's as well. And it makes sense when you look at the, the, the uh, glymphatic system and what, how much it compromises, is compromised. In 2018, this study came out, and that was a, this is a hot topic for the National Football League. And traumatic brain injury is an increasingly important issue among veterans and athletes and, and the general pu- public. Difficulties with sleep onset and maintenance are among the most commonly reported symptoms following injury, and sleep debt is associated with increased accumulation of beta amyloid and phosphorylated tau in the interstitial space, in part due to relocalization of aquaporin-4 channels away from the astrocytic infeet. What does that mean? That means when you hurt your brain, those little channels, those water channels that are supposed to be out here, they go in other places in the astrocytes, and they're moved. And so you don't get the glymphatic flow. That convective flow is, is missing after tra- traumatic brain injury, especially repeated over and over and over. That's a, a big issue for um, football. And then, again, this year, um, interesting, is when is the glymphatic system most active? Well, the glymphatic system they found just this year the study, uh, this study, which appears in the Journal of Science Advances, indicate that the slow and steady brain and cardio, cardiopulmonary activity associated with deep non-REM sleep are optimal for the function of the glymphatic system. As we age, it becomes more difficult to consistently achieve deep non-REM sleep, and the study enforces the importance of deep sleep to the proper function of the glymphatic system. So you've got to know the stages of sleep. And the stages basically are there's two stages, non-REM, rapid eye movement sleep, and rapid eye movement sleep, REM. And so memory consolidation requires both of these stages. Um, But um, the key is right here. It's stage three, right before REM sleep. This deep stage three non-REM sleep is the period of deep sleep that you need to feel refreshed in the morning. It occurs in longer periods during the first half of the night. The first half of the night. We just said this study showed that it's the deep non-REM sleep that are optimal for the function of the glymphatic system. So if you put two and two together, that means the glymphatic system is more effective during these longer periods, the first half of the night. Does that ring a bell? Over 100 years... Sorry. Well, we'll get to that slide. Over 100 years ago, the quote that I'll show you later by Ellen White says that an hour of sleep before midnight is worth two hours after midnight. Okay? So don't be staying up late at night. Go to bed early. And this study this year confirms 
that. Now, that wasn't a statement that she was shown that. It was in her own research in talking with brain workers, as she puts it. So brain workers are those that might be sitting in this room, you know, that use their brain all, the, all day long instead of their, their other, other muscles that uh, uh, build up more waste, maybe. And so they need the glymphatic system extra. So it's really important for brain workers to go to bed early. Okay, so Brad's simple summary so far. There has been a relatively new discovery of how the brain clears its metabolic waste that has built up during the day called the glymphatic system. It's active during sleep, especially the, during the first half of the night. It decreases with age, potentially due to overall less CSF production <clears throat> and lower CSF pressure as we age. And problems with the glymphatic system may be a very significant factor in neurodegenerative diseases, possibly exacerbated by other systemic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. Everybody follow me so far? <clears throat> I know this is heavy. Okay, here's the famous quote. I know from the testimonies given me from time to time for brain workers that sleep is worth far more before midnight than after midnight. Two hours good sleep before 12 o'clock is worth more than four hours after 12 o'clock. That's second, I mean, that's um, manuscript releases, number seven, page 224. So as I learned about this several years ago, and I started thinking about this, I started to wonder is if you have, could the glymphatic system affect our eyes especially the neurodegenerative disease that we deal with every day that causes a loss of neurons in the brain that has exponentially higher risk as we age that might be associated with sleep disorders such as sleep apnea and is associated with other systemic diseases such as diabetes and hypertension? Glaucoma? Ring a bell? It's the neurodegenerative disease that we deal with every day. causes a loss of neurons in the brain higher risk as we age. Some studies have shown associated with sleep apnea, some haven't. Is associated with other systemic diseases, such as diabetes and hypertension, huge risk factors for glaucoma. So I wasn't the only one in the world that thought this. Peter Wosten and his team in Belgium wondered the same thing. And they wondered, what about an ocular glymphatic system? And he's published over 60 studies on this topic, covering the CSF, glymphatic disease, Alzheimer's, and glaucoma. And two years ago, he published a study called The Glymphatic Hypothesis of Glaucoma. And he says, intriguingly, recent reports presented at Arvo 2016, now this is not Arvo Kana, uh, who goes to church with us, but it is um, the Association of Research for Research and Vision and Ophthalmology. Uh, annual meeting together with preliminary data from our own postmortem study show that a similar paravascular clearance system is present in the human optic nerve and, and retina. Now I'm going to say that again for the eye doctors and eye surgeons that are in this room. A paravascular clearance system is present in the optic nerve and in the retina. That means every blood vessel in every artery and nerve, artery and vein, have this paravascular clearance system. 
Retinas were examined using multimarker immunohistochemistry. And remember this, the aquaporin-4 channel, the glial network, and sheathed the entire retinal vascular system, including between the blood vessels, and the authors concluded that this may be the anatomical correlate of a retinal glymphatic system. He continues, the lamina cribosa might play a critical role in the paravascular flow between the optic nerve and the retina that can cause a blockage of this flow with decreased elimination of neurotoxic substances such as beta amyloid or amyloid beta and subsequent glaucomatous optic atrophy, or, um, yeah, atrophy, neuropathy. So the discovery of this ocular glymphatic system may be particular importance for the understanding of the pathophysiology of glaucoma given that studies back in 2007, so that was 12 years ago, in glaucomatous animal models have shown that beta amyloid is likely a mediator of pressure-induced retinal ganglion cell death. I have never heard that before, but they knew this 12 years ago, and uh, I haven't sat in any lectures that where anybody brought this up. But um, it makes sense, because if beta amyloid is being collected and found in the optic nerve and in the retina because of the lack of the paravascular flow, it uh, could lead to this. And then 2009, Wooston said, we hypothesize that there may be a causal relationship between Alzheimer's and glaucoma, that they may be explained by decreased CSF pressure in patients with Alzheimer's disease. A very recent study showed or reported, now this is 2009 when this is coming out, uh, reported the intriguing new observation that mean CSF was 30 pre, uh, pressure was 33% lower in subjects with, with primary open-angle glaucoma than that of non-glaucomatous controls. It was noted that this observation supports the concept of an abnormal high translaminal cribosa pressure difference, whether the result of elevated intraocular pressure or reduced CSF or both plays an important role in glaucoma. And interestingly, uh, it was also reported that a substantial proportion of Alzheimer's patients have very low CSF pressure. So I'll summarize this here in a second. Therefore, we hypothesize that an abnormal high translamina cribosa pressure difference may explain why patients with Alzheimer's have a greater risk for developing glaucoma. So basically, what he's saying is that here comes the CSF around the central retinal artery into the back of the eye, and here in the central retinal vein, as it leaves with the waste around it from the retina, draining from the retina, could be impinged based on the difference between the eye pressure and the CSF pressure. This is, this is the lamina cribosa, so the trans-lamina cribosa pressure difference is what he's keying in on with this. Jonas, in 2011, his, uh, he says recent clinical studies reported that patients with normal pressure glaucoma had significantly lower CSF pressure in a high translamina pressure difference. So more so in normal tension or low tension glaucoma. So then... <clears throat> 
could glymphatic disruption contribute to other eye diseases too, other than just glaucoma? And the answer is, they think so. So this was uh, researchers in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and they published this in the Frontiers in Neurology, and this little sentence right here says, we propose that diffuse retention of interstitial fluid, or extracellular fluid there, is a direct consequence of imbalance of glymphatic flow, and this is in pseudotumor cerebri, okay? So you got that pinching of the optic nerve from the high CSF pressure, and they think that the actual uh, cause of that is not... So when I was in optometry school, this is, I know, in the dark ages 22 years ago, 23 years ago, but they were telling us that it was interruption of the axonal flow within the axons of the retinal ganglion cells and the impingement there might be causing the, the uh, neurodegeneration of the optic nerve, the neurons. Well, this is another theory. And so it's not even called pseudotumor cerebri anymore or benign intracranial hypertension. Those are misnomers. It, you're supposed to call this idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, it's also known as primary intracranial hypertension. But they called it this uh, in their study a year ago. And so I'm going to read you this sentence right here. And this says, The rationale for the hypothesis springs from MRI studies, which have shown many signs related to intracranial uh, hypertension without evidence of overproduction of CSF. In other words, so that high CSF pressure that's in the brain in, pseudo, in pseudotumor is uh, because, not because the CSS, CSF is overproduced, but probably a direct consequence of imbalance of glymphatic flow, okay, within the brain. So in other words, in the brain, again, the, the influx of the CSF might be, the inflow might be affected, or the outflow of the CFF, CSF could be impaired. And, so, and maybe it's the, the water channels that causes this retention of interstitial fluid and then creates the, the swelling of the optic nerve. Okay, so all this talk about CSF pressure and what it does to the eye would not be complete without talking about our last topic, and that's vision loss in outer space. So John Phillips, back in 2005, was the first astronaut. He was on board the International Space Station, and he was the first one that noticed a change in his vision. And what they found is that 80% of astronauts that spend more than 30 days in outer space come back with vision loss. And it's so important that the number one concern of space travel right now is getting blown up. Getting blown up, okay? Explosion. The number two concern of space travel right now is blindness, okay? It's high on the list for NASA. And it was, so this, this was called the Visual Impairment Intracranial Pressure, VIIP. But now they call it the Space Flight Associated Neuroocular Syndrome, or SANS. So in 2005, John Phillips had 20-20 vision when he left for the International Space Station. He comes back six months later, and his vision dropped to 2100. And what they found is that after six months on the International Space Station, he ended up getting basically a papilledema or pseudopapilledema here. And in microgravity, 
the, the uh, venous system has been put into minimal outflow and maximal obstruction, and that causes the cranial venous hypertension. Okay, so the pressure builds up in an anti- or microgravity environment, and impinges the optic nerve. Now, this isn't like papilledema that we see, you know, with a, with a baseball-sized brain tumor. It's subtle, but it's definitely elevated. So if you had a slit lamp and you had your precorneal lens, you could see that elevation uh, on these discs. And it's, and it's concerning because it's affecting their vision. And sometimes it's permanent. So I have a quiz now for you. All right, so wake up. A 10-year-old child presents to your office for her first eye exam. She's 20-20 vision, normal pupils, normal visual field, normal, no neurological signs or symptoms, no headaches. Okay? Upon dilated fundus exam, you find significantly elevated discs with blurred margins. And you can't see any buried optic nerve head drusen. And as a clinician you have to decide if the patient has true papilledema or is this just physiological elevated discs. And if you're like me, I have lots and lots of kids that come in, and if you dilate them and look at their optic nerves, you have a lot of this nasal elevation there on the nasal aspect many, many times. It's not uncommon. Well, what other signs should you look for upon examination? And I'm going to tell you, the hint is the vessels at the margin are just slightly obscured, so kind of halfway in between. So you can't really tell if the swelling is at the retinal nerve fiber layer or if it's actually at the RPE layer, which is the, the distinguishing factor of you know, the optic neuritis or the ION, ischemic optic neurop- uh, neuropathy versus the true papilledema. So what should you look for? What, so... All you have now, you don't have any other equipment except your slit lamp and a precorneal lens. There's something very, very simple that, that should come to your mind to look for. What'd you say? Very good. A spontaneous venous pulse. And why is that? Because if the spontaneous venous pulse is present, in other words, if you can see the, the vein, the central retinal vein pulsating, then you know that the intracranial pressure at that moment is normal. So that relieves you from an acute situation, an immediate MRI, right? And why? They found this actually from, this is 1978 material that I'm telling you about. So that covers a lot of us in the room. The presence of spontaneous venous pulsations is a reliable indicator of an intracranial pressure below 180 to 190 millimeters of uh, water on opening pressure. So there's lots of different theories, and I'm not going to go into all of these, why the vein actually pulses. So there's um, initial theories where the heartbeat Uh, they think might have caused a spike in the IOP or the intraocular pressure compressing the vein and there's um, the uh, theory of of the difference in pulse pressure between intraocular space and the cerebral spinal fluid Um, and we can get into all of these 
But the key here is why does the spontaneous venous pulse stop if the CSF is high? Okay? So what happens is, is, the, is the cranial pressure increases above the eye pressure, then you won't see that. And that's a red flag. Okay? So if you don't see a spontaneous venous pulse, then you'd be more likely to order the MRI. If you see that pulsating, well, you know the CSF, it's not 100%, but it's close to that. It, this CSF pressure is going to be normal. You know they're not going to have a huge uh, brain tumor in there. And so um, usually on opening pressure when you do a spinal tap, it's going to be higher when the patient's sitting up than when laying down. So... Normal high eye pressure is what? 21, right? 21. So if you convert the opening pressure to millimeters of mercury, the high norm CSF would be like 13 to 14. So you see that the normally the eye pressure is higher than the brain pressure. Does that make sense? Okay. If the brain pressure goes high, then you lose that spontaneous venous pulse and more likely to have a brain tumor. That's, that's the clinical pearl here. That sa it saves me all the time in clinic. And um, so when the eye pressure is high or normal, but it's still above the cranial pressure, you're going to see the pulse, spontaneous venous pulse. That, at least at that moment, you know the CSF pressure is normal. If the eye pressure, if the brain pressure goes higher than the eye pressure, then it will not be seen. And that could be a bad finding if you're worried about a brain tumor. So back to the quiz question. That happened to be one of my patients. She was 10 years old. I saw elevation without a spontaneous venous pulse. Okay? So I can't rule out high intracranial pressure. And so if, since I can't rule out high intracranial pressure, I'm going to order an MRI first. And then if that's clear, I'm going to order the spinal tap or have my neurologist locally order the spinal tap. So if, if this, in fact, uh, I was kind of quizzing this patient a little bit, though, before I made that decision. And I asked her, I said, any headaches, dizziness? She didn't uh, admit to any headaches that I remember. But dizziness, she says, yeah, you know, during the normal times. And I said, normal time. I said, well, you like, uh, if I spun, spun you around in a chair, you know, or something really fast, you'd get dizzy. And she goes, yeah, that. And like, you know, if you hold your breath, right? She goes, uh, that happens to everybody, doesn't it? And I looked at her and I said, show me. And she's like this. And she got dizzy within two seconds. And I said, no, that's not normal. <laughs> so I get the MRI going. And the radiologist you want an MRI with and without contrast, by the way. And it comes back as Chiari type 1 brain malformation that she's had since she was a baby, and nobody knew it. And the radiologist called me and said, Brad, you've got to get this girl. She needs surgery now. Because every time she took a breath, a deep breath, the cerebellum was going down into the frame and magnum, which is way too big, and pinching and, and squeezing the the uh, spinal cord there. And there was a concern, and to me it sounded like a splitting of the spinal cord or, or something that they're like, if it goes one more centimeter down, it's going to affect her lung innervation and breathing, and she will die. So now it's 15 years later. 
she's graduated from college and is now a nurse and uh, because we got her seen. And, and another little aside to this, she came up to Roan Mountain in Tennessee there when we were camping, and the family just came up for the day, and I happened to look across the valley there in the, in the road, and there's this, like, waterfall coming down these rocks, and here's this girl about six months after she had surgery or so, and I see, and I look, and she's coming down on her rear end, doom, 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 like that, on the, on the rocks, you know, like kids do, you know, riding the... And I thought to myself, you know, that might have killed her if she would have done that eight months ago. And nobody would have known why until the autopsy came back. So it's a, it's a valuable thing, and, and this doesn't happen very often, but when it does, we want to know what we're doing and, and, and be the best we can be. And so she's special to me and always will be. The clinical pearl is 90% of normal patients that you see, 90% of them are going to have a spontaneous venous pulse if you take the time to look. 10% of normal patients will not. But if you can see it, breathe a little easier. It doesn't always rule out high CSF pressure. There was a study actually in India, in the Indian Journal of Ophthalmology, that showed that when the patient actually laid down this, this particular patient, the pressure went up, which is opposite of what should happen, but so it's not 100%. <clears throat> now, spontaneous venous pulse, this study here uh, showed that significantly fewer glaucoma patients were observed to have a spontaneous venous pulse than glaucoma suspects. In other words, glaucoma suspects had the spontaneous venous pulse more than patients with glaucoma. Now, this didn't make sense to me. Now, I've been in practice 22 years, and one of the things that I have noted just personally is that when I have somebody that is a low-tension glaucoma suspect, if I look and they, and they have a very, very prominent spontaneous venous pulse, and when I, when I say prominent, the ones that are just boom, boom, and you can just see it there, those patients were the ones that went on to develop glaucoma damage, okay? And so when I saw this, at first I'm like, this doesn't make sense with what my personal findings are. Now, I've never heard anybody speak on that, okay? And I've talked to several glaucoma specialists and, and speakers that, uh, you know, I've sat in their classes. But that was just my personal experience. And it, so basically right here, a normal glaucoma suspect is when, let's just assume that the patient's brain pressure is normal, but they have a high eye pressure, okay? A low-tension glaucoma suspect is when they have a normal eye pressure, but we've just read that in those patients, the CSF is low, okay? And so if you had a very low CSF, then you would have a more prominent spontaneous venous pulse, right? Okay. And that's my finding. And so the spontaneous venous pulse would be present in both of these, actually. Now you put these same patients on drops. So now what you have you done? You've lowered the eye pressure. You've lowered the eye pressure. Now below the brain pressure, the brain pressure is high now in both of these. So what's going to be missing? the spontaneous venous pulse. 
So my point is, is that when it's said that glaucoma suspects have more spontaneous venous pulse than glaucoma patients, well, of course, because we put them on drops and lowered the, pre- the eye pressure. And, and then it made sense to me. And, and uh, it wasn't until I listened at SECO in 2016. Uh, John Berdahl is a glaucoma specialist in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And he is now on the Vision for Mars team at NASA. And why he's a Vision for Mar- why is he on the Vision for Mars team? Because he thinks that glaucoma is a two-pressure problem, not a one-pressure problem. It's not an eye pressure problem. It's the CSF pressure we got to consider as well. Okay, so it's that difference that's shearing the optic nerve, basically, if you want to think of it that way. And so, in his theory, is that these astronauts, when they go to outer space, if their CSF pressure in their brain increases, then why not wear special goggles that increase the eye pressure high to counteract the high CSF and take away the shearing of the at the laminar cribosa. And so he's actually um, on their team, and they're like, uh, it just might work. So we'll find out. Yeah. Swimmer's glaucoma. Okay. The, like scuba diving deep or just, oh. I have not. Oh, you mean because they're pressing on there. You know what? I do. I swim every week, and that does. I got to be careful here. <laughs> hmm. It. I have actually thought about. No, I have not heard of that. So thank you. There is a reason that I wear a looser tie. No joke, because uh, tie wearing was associated with glaucoma as well. And so when I saw that study, every single one of my shirts went back. There you go. And uh, I increased my neck size by a half. Yes. <laughs> you won't look as professional if you don't wear a tie, right? So it's very interesting what John Berdahl found, because when he was a resident at Duke, he did this study and found that uh, CSF pressure, here's a normal patient. Now these are, think glaucoma here. A normal patient with normal intracranial pressure, okay? If you have an ocular hypertensive patient where the eye pressure is high, okay, look at that. The intracranial pressure on those patients, these are patients that do not get glaucoma. Their pressures may be 28, so high norm is 21. They might have high intraocular pressure, but their intracranial pressure is also high, and they don't get glaucoma. There's no shearing of that optic nerve. Does that make sense? Whereas glaucoma, and especially normal tension glaucoma or low tension glaucoma, they have lower CSF, which the other studies confirmed as well, which is fascinating to me. And that's my, my point about this. So many of my low tension or normal tension glaucoma suspects have this spontaneous venous pulse, not a faint one, but a significant one, and perhaps they don't have the high IOP, they probably have just really low CSF pressure. And uh, again here, and let's just move on. All right, at age 65, the pressure 
decreases. Now, earlier in the lecture, when we were talking about the glymphatics, we said CSF pressure, I mean production, decreased by 50% in humans, right? Now, you know that at age 65, the actual pressure, CSF pressure, also decreases, okay? Which means that potentially you might see a more prominent venous pulse because that CSF is going lower and lower and lower. And wouldn't you know that about that same age, the risk of glaucoma starts to skyrocket as well as dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other things potentially? And so Dr. Berdahl, he was like, we know a couple of things, and this is what puzzles him. We know that most people with high eye pressure do not get glaucoma, and we know that. So as much as is only 10% potentially go on to get glaucoma, and you've got to treat all 100 the same to catch those 10 that could go blind from it. And we also know that only about 30 or 40% 30 or 40% of all the people that get glaucoma their pressure is never high, okay? But if you're an Asian, 70% of those glaucoma patients don't have high pressure, okay? So they're much more likely to get low-pressure glaucoma. And so this puzzled him, and this is where he came up with his glaucoma is a two-pressure disease, not a one-pressure disease. So you got to think about the IOP, but you also have to think about the intracranial pressure as well. So this is a, a cross-section of the optic nerve. So there's your intraocular pressure. This black area is the lamina cribosa right here, the, kind of the skeleton right there, and then the CSF. So if this is high or if this is high, these neurons right here are clipped or basically uh, damaged. And probably, now that you know about lymphatic flow, Probably maybe the glymphatics have something to do with this as well. So this is a schematic here that if you raise this, it's going to create the cupping that we see in glaucoma. And when this pressure is higher than this pressure. So he's, actually, he's so convinced of this as a glaucoma specialist that he's actually started a company called Equinox. And this is a treatment that they're doing trials on right now. And this mask right here you hook up to this device, and it creates a vacuum in a pair of goggles, opposite of his idea for outer space. But this is for uh, terrestrial beings. So what you can do is you can actually dial in on the front of the eye a decreased pressure of 25%, 50%, 75% lower pressure for sleep. So you put this on while you're asleep, and you can lower the patient's pressure, and, and this is going to be more effective. I mean, the, the, the hardest ones to treat are the ones that are low pressure to begin with, okay? So if they're 14, to get them down to 9 or something is very difficult with medication and stuff. And so um, this is very effective. So the, this is some studies that were done where they did it on one eye, not the other eye. And it just shows that they can get a, a very good going from 16, 15, 16, down to 9, 9, 9 10. And uh, then after they take it off, it goes back up. But they still have to obviously do long-term uh, evaluation of this. But IOP at night is the most vulnerable time. Do you know when your pressure is the highest? At midnight. 
And so it, this makes sense to counteract that. That's why we use latanoprost and all the, the um, other glaucoma medicines. So equalizing this pressure difference is, and creating this balance is uh, what we want. And then raising IOP for the astronauts might help their vision loss problem as well. So let's put this all together. I believe that all neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, Alzheimer's, and even glaucoma are multifactorial. And could it be that if we see a very prominent spontaneous venous pulse in our patients with significant cupping, that it could be another risk factor for low tension or normal tension glaucoma because the CSF might be very, very low, something we may not have thought about? And could it be that this very, very low CSF pressure, which creates less glymphatic clearance, could also be contributing to glaucoma? And these are things that uh, I found interesting. And I want to give my, one of my professors was Dr. Leo Sims at UAB. He was one of my favorite professors, and I had him several times in clinic. And what I liked about him is that he had a vast knowledge of the literature, and this summer at the AOA meeting in St. Louis, he spoke on uh, retina, some nutrition and retina and whatnot. And so I wanted to pick his brain like I used to do in the locker room and stuff as well. And I, I, I said, Dr. Sims, I said, uh, here, this is my theory. I haven't had time to research it or anything like that. But I've talked to, you know, I usually have time after a lecture or whatever, go up and talk to the glaucoma specialist or whatever that's speaking on glaucoma, and nobody, they all just look at me like I'm an idiot, and, and um, nobody's ever heard of this. I said, have you, do you know of any studies that have ever been done on this? And he's like, you know what? He says, yeah. He says, uh, give me a couple of weeks, and I'll, I'll get them to you. And sure enough, he actually followed up with this and sent me some studies, some of which I showed you. Um, and so he, the, he, that encouraged me. I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to dig deeper on this. And, and uh, that's about the time that I was working, started to work on this lecture. And so I want to give him a shout-out because his vast knowledge of the literature sparked my interest to dig a little deeper personally. So I uh, hope that we our learning objectives were covered where we covered the lymphatic system and... Well, the question is, have they done anything yet to reduce this issue, maybe with glymphatics or the CSF and all that? That's the whole frontier. So that's one reason I went ahead and did this lecture, because I'm hoping that somebody out there hears this and it sparks their interest to do research in this, because this opens up a whole new field. And they're already doing it for Alzheimer's. They're already looking at these aquaporin-4 uh, water channels and trying to figure out how to make those more efficient or how to open them up if they get clogged on the drainage side, on the venous side. So there's all kind of issues that they're hoping that they can solve with this. It's exciting, actually. But um, number two, we... Oh, sorry, Arvo. So what he's saying is, if I can uh, repeat that, is um, there should be a correlation between low-pressure glaucoma and some of the other diseases that cause very low CSF pressure. Is that what I'm, is that right? 
with collagen disorders and things. I didn't even mention this, actually, but um, if, does it make sense why um, sleep apnea? So we always think of sleep apnea affecting glaucoma because of, well, no oxygen, no, no life, right? So that kind of is a no-brainer, no pun intended. But um, it's actually possibly more glymphatic disruption in a sleep cycle with sleep apnea. So if you have sleep apnea and you're not getting that good non-REM stage 3 sleep, you're not getting the clearance that you need. And I know that's the college, some, some of what, I, I'm not an expert in that field at all, but... That's right, yeah. Although it is a convective flow, unidirectional, from the high pressure from the artery to the vein, so low vein side is a good thing for, for some of that, I would think, if the, pre, if the arterial pressure side was high. I, again. Obesity and, and, well, in obesity, you tend to have higher venous pressure. Oh, oh, higher venous. I thought you said lower venous pressure. So that makes sense. So if you, yeah, so like in obesity, what he's saying is that if the, if the uh, venous pressure was high, then, yeah, there's going to be less pressure difference there. In Exactly. They can't drain the, the CSF out. That's, that's exactly right, I would think. So... Yeah. To work with neuroprotective um, factors, which kind of maybe makes it different, makes it makes sense with the Right. Well, they've been, yeah, they've been talking about neuroprotection for years in glaucoma, but, but uh, never, never be, that not knowing what it's protecting. So. That could make sense with this is ischemic optic neuropathy. Yes. Because of increased flow through, because cognitive distant risks. That's exactly right. And so I would expect that over the next five years, maybe, that you're going to hear more uh, lectures on the glymphatic system and eye disease, and there's a lot more out there that I did not have time in the 60 minutes to cover. And I've gone over that. So um, let's go ahead and um, read our text again. And it says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And now as you read this, and David, oh, I can't wait to maybe be the one to show him or somebody. Uh, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. And uh, it is marvelous. So with that, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for making us so wonderfully complex. And again, your workmanship is marvelous. Thank you for this opportunity to learn more about how you created us. And it reminds us how only you can recreate in us the image you originally intended for us to have. We ask that you bless the rest of our meetings together. We ask that you bless each uh, person in this room as they come in contact with people and patients. And um, as we introduce them to Jesus, we ask that uh, you live your life through us and give us the tact and wisdom to know how to do it as if you were in the room and doing it yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.